Hey friends, Pastor Brooks here. I just want to thank you for checking out this podcast and to acknowledge that this teaching was created in collaboration with Practicing the Way and John Mark Homer. They are doing great work to provide discipleship resources for the church, and so we give them our gratitude and encourage you to check them out at practicingtheway.org. For now, enjoy the podcast. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Uh, we'll be reading verses 15 through 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you meet us exactly where we are, whether that's in a place of tiredness or a place of joy? Um, Lord, you're with us through it all, so we ask that you would be with us now um, and that you would just speak to us in a personal way this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. So as was just announced, uh, back in January, Amanda and I started hosting youth nights at our place. Where's our youth group at? Nice, nice, cool. We want to provide a safe place for our younger brothers and sisters to come to find and build relationships that go beyond the surface, uh, to discover that church is more than just the Sunday thing, uh, and hopefully in the process encounter Jesus in new, beautiful ways. Anyway, it was our first meeting of the year. Uh, We laid out chips and soda, ordered pizza, basic ingredients for a healthy, thriving youth group. Uh, And then one of our older guys noticed something peculiar sitting on the counter, a large, dusty glass bowl. And he gasps and exclaims, whoa, is that the phone bowl from the old building? Uh, Upon restarting our youth night for the new year, we decided to bring back an old tradition, the phone bowl. Uh, First, if you're not familiar with the phone bowl, know that it's not forced. Uh, We believe in free choice. But when we start, we all place our phones in the bowl for the duration of an evening uh, in an effort to actively remove distractions so that we can be present to each other and to God. And I get to say that It's actually an accepted tradition now, it's habit. There's not a lick of coercion or forcing that needs to happen. Uh, And for the two hours that ensue, in the midst of our age of digital distraction, our youth group is an underground countercultural resistance to the norms of our day. Go youth group. But to my Gen Z, Gen Alpha friends in the room, when it comes to distractedness, I honestly don't blame you. Uh, Like, I constantly have to be wary of my screen time. And what's more, growing up, I was actually an incredibly distracted kid. Like, my mom would give me flack about it all the time. In school, I was a decent student, but, like, not bad, but not spectacular either, like most of you guys. Um, But I was always very distractible. And I would always miss things that my teachers would say. And then I'd be too shy to ask questions or to ask them to repeat themselves. And so I would always be that guy who'd always have to ask their friends. 
And then I grew up before the age of the iPhone. And so when I look back, if I did have an iPhone, I think I would be a terrible student. Back then, I would miss details from the lesson of the day or due dates. But what if, in my distractedness, I missed something even more important? Like, FOMO is such a phenomenon, but do we ever consider what we miss out on as we're sucked into the noise and the distraction? Like, we turn to our screens, ironically, to avoid the fear of missing out. But I wonder what we actually miss out on when we do. Hold that thought. Let's take a trip back in time. It's January 27th, and the year is 1956. Uh, we're not in Everett, but we're in Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is young. It's years before his famous I Have a Dream speech, uh, and he's thinking about giving up. At this point, he's been brought into Alabama to lead the bus boycotts, uh, but opposition to the movement is rising, and things are getting extra dangerous and extra scary. With each day, Dr. King receives more and more death threats, and he begins to fear not just for his own safety and for his own life, but also for his family, his wife and their young daughter. And so giving up, abandoning the dream of, of ending segregation and fighting for justice and equal rights is kind of the logical thing to do. It's the safe thing to do for his family. But on January 27th, something happens. It's the middle of the night, and amidst the, the death threats haunting his thoughts and, and the anxiousness, Dr. King can't sleep. So he gets out of bed, makes a cup of coffee, and as he sits down in the kitchen, alone in the silence, he begins to pray to God. And he recounts it in a sermon like this. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer, and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for justice. Stand, or stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth and I will be with you even till the end of the world. And this proves to be a defining moment. This quiet moment in the middle of the night over a cup of coffee in solitude, in prayer, is a turning of the tide for both Dr. King and the entire civil rights movement, and with that, the course of history as we know it. But imagine this. What if, just as Dr. King sitting down with his coffee, possibly about to pray, what if he decided instead to check his Instagram stories or the latest TikTok clips? Or what if he decided there were new Pokemon to be caught in the kitchen? Or new tweets to catch up on? Would there even be a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Would there have been an I have a dream speech? What would have happened to the entire civil rights movement? Or would he have felt God's invitation into prayer to hear God's voice, his call, and then to receive strength for that long road ahead? Or would he have missed it entirely, lost in a sea of distractions? 
Imagine if Moses climbed the mountain, saw the burning bush, and then had to take a work call or decided to check his texts. What would have happened to the following generations of Israelites? Like after 400 plus years of slavery, how many more years of oppression would there have been if Moses, instead of hearing God and then obeying, was simply distracted? Turn to your neighbor and ask them this. Neighbor, what do you think is the greatest threat to the Christian faith in your relationship with Jesus? Take 10 seconds for that. What do you think is the greatest threat to, your, to the Christian faith in your relationship with Jesus? Seven seconds left. Three, two, one. All right, guys, is it, is it secularism? Is it differing stances over all the hot-button topics of our day? Is it politics? What if, friends, what if the greatest threat is actually none of these things, but only the thing that's right under our noses? What if the greatest threat to your faith, to your relationship with Jesus, to, to being a true disciple, is simply distraction and noise? And unfortunately, as we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, distraction and noise, that's the sea in which we swim. It's the air we breathe, so normal that it's acceptable. And we know that all the stats point to the harm that our distractions actually do to our mental health, our physical health, and by extension, our emotional health. But it's worse, it's actually threatening the health of our souls. Like, think of it this way. We all want to hear God, I think. We'd love to experience him more and know that he's actually here and that he actually cares. But I wonder how many moments have we missed? How many moments have we missed where God wants to speak to us or shape us in some way but we're just too distracted or too preoccupied? How often do we miss that still, small voice? And if this is the state of things, if this kingdom of noise and distraction is the world in which we live, is there even a way out? But more specifically, is there a practice from the way of Jesus that could position us to hear Jesus' voice, the voice of our shepherd, in the midst of the noise and distraction of our world? Well, what we learn from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., what we learn from Moses, and ultimately what we learn from the lifestyle of Jesus is that there is. It's the practice of solitude. So today we start our four-week teaching and practice series on solitude, which I think is just perfect for the season of Lent. That lined up really well. So with that, turn with me back in your Bibles to, to Luke 5. Luke chapter 5. Uh, we'll read again from verse 15. And just to practice re-engaging our attention, let's read it together, okay? It'll be on the screen this time. Ready? Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The Greek word used for lonely places here is this word called eremos. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Eremos. Perfect. Eremos can be translated to lonely places, 
but also the desert or the deserted place, the desolate place, the solitary place, or the quiet place. Now, I love that we live in Washington, where uh, in between the city, the metropolitan areas, and the suburbs, there are still stretches of uninhabited, undeveloped land. Like our family just flew back from Houston, uh, and so we got to be reminded of the beauty of the land that is our state. Like miles and miles and miles of evergreens, the snow-capped cascades, the vastness, right? And I think the Middle Eastern landscape that Jesus lived in was quite a bit different, but he would have definitely had access to just vast, empty stretches of uninhabited, deserted land. And it's here, it's places like that, that he would dis disappear to in order to be alone out in nature with God to pray. This is the Eremos. I personally think that Jesus would have loved living in the Pacific Northwest. It's so many places to retreat to, to be alone with God. Now, all of us have a life rhythm of some sort. Usually it goes something like wake up, maybe eat breakfast, maybe not. Usually rush to work or school, or like us this morning, rush to church, uh, and then get home, and then immerse ourselves in either homework or errands, or then a show or entertainment of some kind, and then maybe sleep too late, I don't know. Uh, but our entire days from waking or sleeping, more often than not, are, are accompanied by some digital device. Our entire days are spent digitally connected. It's like our phones cry out to us, and behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. But Jesus also had a life rhythm, but as you might imagine, it was quite different. You could describe Jesus' rhythm as one of retreat and return. Retreat, meaning he would constantly retreat or get away to be alone with God, as the Gospels describe. But then return, he would come back to be with people, to be in community with people, and to love and serve people. In fact, you could say that his retreat kind of fueled his return. His time with God gave him the strength and the vision to come back and love people. And so Jesus' life rhythm was one of solitude and community. He was constantly going back and forth between the two. If you've been to our house, specifically our dining room, you might have noticed two specific art pieces in our dining room on the wall. One is a photograph of a desert scape. I should have included it up there. It's beautiful. Uh, one is a photograph of a desert scape that a friend of ours actually took and then gifted to us. Um, and then the other is, is a print of, of a feast scene. And it's kind of fantastical. There's a lamb, there's a unicorn, I think there's a lion and a dolphin. And they're all sharing food and wine together. And we didn't even think about this as we were putting them up, but these are representations of solitude and community. I think that actually dawned on me one morning, like months later. But friends, we have to understand that those two things, solitude and community, are the pillars of the spiritual life. It's a basic framework on how to follow Jesus and imitate his life rhythm. But here's the problem. Two, in fact. First, we're never, or if, if so, then rarely in total solitude. But then at the same time, we're rarely all the way in community as well. 
Now, I know we're, we're making great strides here in our community, and I'm super, super thankful for that. And I don't mean to generalize, but the norms, the cultural norms of our day are this. We're often alone, but accompanied by something, be that a device or, or, or a podcast, or it's just something going on in the background. And then two, we are characterized not by deep relationships, by surface level relationships. Again, kind of generalization, but it's pretty normal. So again, we're not really all the way in solitude or community. And at the same time, deep down, we, we want the effects of both solitude and deep community. Then at the same time, we're also kind of afraid of both, right? Like most of the time when we talk about solitude, these kind of things come up. One, I'm just really scared of being alone with my thoughts. Or two, I'm too busy for something like that. It doesn't seem very productive, which leads into three, it feels like a waste of time. Or four, sounds boring. And then five, how is this supposed to benefit others? Think of it this way. Jesus changed the course of history in more ways than we can fathom. And solitude was core to the way he lived his life. All that he did came out of being alone with God. And Jesus was also a super busy guy. Like people were always seeking him out, always trying to follow him, literally grabbing and like clinging on to him. And he was always traveling for work, teaching, healing, casting out demons. And yet, in spite of that, he would regularly make time to be alone with God, to get away. In fact, the more in demand Jesus was, the more he would slip away to be with his father. Think about that. Like for me, when my life gets busy, it's usually the opposite, right? But church, we are here today to launch a countercultural resistance against that. We're here to practice the way of Jesus. So let's talk solitude. First, if you're taking notes, let's talk about what it's not. Solitude is not loneliness. Sociologists tell us, and you already know, Gen Z is the loneliest generation of all time. But solitude is not loneliness. The spiritual writer Richard Foster states this, loneliness is inner emptiness, solitude is inner fulfillment, which leads us to the second point. Solitude is not isolation. Isolation is withdrawing, moving away. Solitude is actually drawing towards, specifically towards God. Solitude is for the nurturing of the soul. Isolation is when we choose to ignore the soul. And then lastly, solitude is not aloneness. Aloneness is when we're physically not around anyone, introverts, paradise, uh, but we're not in solitude. We're usually scrolling, reading a book, texting. And just to clarify, solitude is not, not like the preference-based spiritual practice if you're specifically an introvert. It's not like spiritual me time. So then, what is solitude? If that's all the things that it is, then what is it? Solitude is intentional time spent in the quiet with nothing but ourselves and God. Author and teacher Ruth Haley Barton, whose book, she writes this book called An Invitation to Solitude and Silence, which I think is the book on solitude, writes this. Solitude, at its most basic and profound level, 
is simply an opportunity to, to be ourselves with God. No pretense, no performance. Just us and God. This is why it's, it's not isolation, because we're drawing towards God. And it's not loneliness or aloneness because we're alone with God. No phones, no devices, just God, just your heart open and bare before him. And so really, solitude is about relationship and intimacy. But we do get to take two companions with us, and they are silence and stillness. First, silence. So two components here. There's exterior silence, and then there's interior silence. Exterior silence is pretty self-explanatory. It's when there's, there are no other people around. So, sorry, you can't have your solitude in like a coffee or a boba shop. Uh, but also, no, no extraneous devices, no AirPods and no background music for the vibes, no alerts, just quiet silence. Interior silence is the harder part. This is where we attempt and practice over time to, to quiet our thoughts, our worries, and our anxieties, and all the inner noise. Easier said than done, which is why I said attempt and practice over time. And these two ingredients lead us to stillness. Stillness is the goal. Picture, if you will, holding an imaginary thing here. Picture a jar that's filled with both water and sand. It's right here. If I shake it up, what happens? You can see it. The sand becomes this chaotic cloud in the water, right? Super murky, no clarity at all. Now what happens if you, if you just let this jar sit for a minute or two or three or four? Slowly but surely, the, the dirt and the silt settles and you can see water again. This is the process that takes place in solitude. As we practice and stick with solitude and silence, over time we come to stillness, where our minds and our hearts are still and clear, like the water, and we're just waiting, waiting on the Lord, waiting and ready to, to listen and hear, waiting and simply sitting in the presence of Jesus and over time learning to enjoy his presence. And so it's through the practice of solitude and silence that we become better hearers and better listeners of Jesus. It's through this practice that we become over time not people of stress and anxiousness but people of peace. And this is why Jesus, along with all the saints throughout history, would tell you that solitude is one of the most important practices of Jesus. Henry Nouwen writes this, Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Notice how he doesn't say, the spiritual life doesn't work as well without solitude, but, you know, just supplement with some devotionals, some worship music, and some podcasts. He says it's virtually impossible. And that's because at the core of the spiritual life is, again, relationship with Jesus, deep connection with him. And the more intimate the relationship, the more alone time is required. Just imagine if Amanda and I never spent alone time together. Side note, we are so incredibly grateful for anyone who's come over to take care of Phoebe while we get alone time. 
But imagine if we were just always moving, always going from place to place, always with people, always posting stories about the fun things we did, but never actually alone. Never just the two of us. We would never be intimate. We'd be the definition of a shallow relationship in a dysfunctional marriage. Our relationship with God is the same way. Now, for a little dose of reality, I want to tell you about the first time, my first time in solitude and silence. I would love to say that it was awesome and life-changing, but it wasn't. It was actually for an assignment uh, for my spiritual formation class in seminary. We were to go on, okay, this is, I, I stepped in this, into this with no experience, but the assignment was to go on a two-hour long retreat, which to me sounded crazy. Like we could go anywhere. We could take our Bibles, our journals, and even some music with us, but for at least 30 minutes of the time, we had to be in complete silence and solitude. So I went to our old empty church building. Uh, I even brought like a little candle with me to set the vibe. Uh, I sat down and you know what it felt like? It felt like an awkward first date. It was like, okay, so what do we do now? <coughs> that last, that felt like forever. And then the restlessness came and I checked my watch. Four minutes had passed. It felt way longer than that. And then the distractions came, random thoughts, followed by little spurts of anxiousness. Did I lock my car? Uh, what was I supposed to get at Trader Joe's after this again? When was that assignment due? More silence and silence and silence and not exactly stillness. I don't think I reached that point. And then it was finally over. Big sigh of relief, followed by did anything even happen? I guess, I'm, I guess I'm supposed to just trust in the process and the slow work of the spirit within me. I don't know. And honestly, that's how it was for a really long time. Uh, but then one day at the end of the evening when Amanda and I catch up and go through our days together, she said this to me. She's like, you know, I can, I can really tell when you've been alone with God come downstairs in the morning with, with a lightness. You move at a more relaxed pace. There's almost a glow about you, like you just came down from the mountain or something. And I think that's one of the best things anyone's ever said to me. And I'm glad that someone else said it too because it meant that I wasn't making things up about my experience. But through the course of my journey in solitude and silence, over time, sticking with it through the amazing moments and the less than amazing moments, where it doesn't seem like anything's happening at all. I am becoming, not there yet, I'm becoming very slowly but surely a more peaceful person. Through solitude, I am becoming more and more in touch with both my thoughts and my feelings. I cultivate a spirit of reflectiveness and contemplation. I tune into my soul. At the same time, I'm, I'm forced to confront all the bad and all the ugliness that's also inside of me. I'm forced to look at my selfishness, at my pride, at my anxieties, my addictions. But I do so not alone, but with God, who is gracious and forgiving. 
through solitude, my ear for God's voice is tuned and sharpened as noise and distractions slowly begin to lose their power. Solitude prepares my eyes to see what God is doing throughout my day. It prepares my ears to hear him through scripture, through other people, through thoughts and feelings, and even through visions and dreams. And sometimes God speaks in that time of solitude, a still, small voice. And so I started the journey feeling boredom, boredom and even dread. But now I actually go to bed and I look forward to the next morning with God. And I don't just say that because I'm a pastor. It's the honest truth. It's like waking up and looking forward to spending that moment with a friend. Conversely, when I fall out of the rhythm of solitude, the opposite happens. Amanda and and other people notice it, I'm sure. I'm less patient, I'm more anxious and less peaceful. I feel out of tune with God, less in touch with my thoughts and my feelings, and as a result, I tend to be more short, more reactive. My pride is fortified. In sum, neglecting solitude is bad for not just my spiritual health, but also my mental and emotional health, and it affects others in negative ways. And there's actually scientific validity to that. Like noise pollution is actually harmful to our health. It's linked to anxiety. It's linked to hypertension, to cognitive impairment even, depression, and so on. Like that's actually what noise is doing to us. And since I know all of this about myself, since I know all of this about my tendencies, I resolve them to practice, practice, practice. Because solitude is our first touch point with God. It's how we give him the empty canvas for the day to paint on. It's how we start our days saying, Jesus, help me walk in step with you today. Ready to see, ready to hear, and ready to follow. In our kingdom of noise, with all of our distractions and all of the pollutants in our eyes and our ears and our minds, we need solitude and silence more than ever. The Christian philosopher Dallas Willard points out, solitude and silence are the most radical of the disciplines for the spiritual life because they most directly attack the sources of human misery. But since we're so entrenched in our habits, in noise and distraction, we need something radical. We need a radical resistance to the noise and by extension, the hold of the world on us. I mean, if Jesus needed solitude, like how could we live without it? How could we live without what Jesus and so many others considered totally essential? Now, at the end of the day, though, keep in mind that solitude, in fact, most of the things we preach on, technically is not a command. Just like reading the Bible or going to church aren't technically commands. Go tell your parents that. Remember what Jesus says. He says, come and follow me. Or in other words, come and follow my way of life. Live like I do. Jesus doesn't command, he invites because he's gentle 
he respects our free choice. But should you take up his invitation to do life as he did, I think you'll find that over the long haul, he's true to his word. I think you'll find, over time, yourself becoming more and more a person of peace in spite of the circumstances, a person of joy and delight, a person of love, and someone who is more in touch with yourself in a healthy way, and someone who's more in touch with God. The goal of solitude isn't simply solitude. It is and has always been relationship, deep relationship. It's really what all the spiritual practices are all about. They are a means to an end. And so to end, I want to read one last quote from Ruth Haley Barton. <clears throat> the invitation to solitude and silence is just that. It's an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of relationship with the one who waits just outside the noise and busyness of our lives. It is an invitation to communication and communion with the one who is always present, even when our awareness has been dulled by distraction. It's an invitation to the adventure of spiritual transformation in the deepest places of our being, an adventure that will result in greater freedom in authenticity and surrender to God than we have yet experienced. God is literally waiting for us outside the noise, distraction, in busyness of our lives. I have this image of like, of a dad waiting for his child outside school whenever the child's ready to run out. Like a good father, he's always been there as if waiting on the porch for his prodigal son or daughter to return. My prayer is that we would be more and more dissatisfied with shallowness with surface level knowledge of God and that we would tune into the need of our souls and in turn draw closer and closer to God through the practice of solitude. Let us follow our shepherd. Let us follow Jesus into the quiet place. Will you stand and pray with me? Jesus, you've laid out for us a beautiful invitation that's just beautifully addressed to each and every one of us here. And our prayer this morning is simply that you would move us, encourage us, empower us to take up your invitation. It might seem like an invitation to a strange and foreign place. But Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to, to look on your example, to look at your lifestyle and the life that resulted from that. Give us a deep desire for that. And help us to take up your invitation to walk forward, to follow you. 
so that we would just be so enraptured by your presence. So that we would be called deeper into relationship with you, deeper enjoyment of you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.